They, they don't listen to me. <laughs> um, if you have your Bibles, please open them up to 1 John chapter 2. And we're going to start with verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. May God bless the reading of his word. So last week, um, we spent a bit of time discussing these two different lifestyles. A lifestyle in the light and a lifestyle in the dark. Um, And now John's going to take the conversation his letter, and he's going to talk about something a little different, and that is assurance. Has anyone ever wondered if they're really saved? Has anyone ever wondered really, okay, am I really in Christ? How can I know if I am in Christ? Um, Is it because I prayed a prayer? Is it because I I do this or this? And that's the question that John's going to kind of focus on in in this moment. He's going to show us further about how we can know if we are really saved in this salvation, in this faith. I hope she's not clicking along. I should have told her. Okay, good. You're good. (laughs) Um, I know. So, um, yeah. So let's go ahead and see, okay, what does John have to say about all this? And Ellen, I'm sorry I made you cry. (laughs) She told me not to earlier. Verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We now begin chapter 2 of 1 John with the opening, My Little Children. This does not mean that John is writing specifically to toddlers or his biological children. Instead, it represents the relationship John has with these congregations. He considers them to be his children. Assuming that the letter was written in the 90s AD, we can surmise John was, would be older than the majority of the people whom he's writing to. So for him to call these individuals his children is both endearing and it's loving. He cares for these people in greatly. And it is apparent by this familial relationship he has with them. And it's very similar, if you remember, um, in Galatians with uh, Paul. He felt the same way with them. We then gain another purpose for John writing this letter, and that is that those who receive it may not sin. This is part of a theme spoken of in chapter 1. We understood it when John reminded his readers that to walk in darkness is to then not be in the light. What he was speaking about metaphorically then, he now speaks plainly now. He does not want these individuals to sin. And by teaching them, he is enabling them to keep from falling into the pits and the snares that sin often comes in. But John understands that we are imperfect. Um, while, it is not po- while it is possible to struggle against sin, there is a recognition that we will not win every battle. 
This was first brought about in the previous chapter when John recognized that those who claim to be without sin are liars. Now, however, John recognizes that if sin does occur, we have an advocate with the Father, and that is Jesus Christ, the righteous. To have an advocate implies one who steps in behalf of another individual. In the Greek, the term used for this, for advocate, was parakletos, or if you may know it as paraclete. And in the Gospel of John, this term is used for the Holy Spirit, though now John is also using it in regards to Christ. This can be understood in a legal sense, one literally stepping in place of another individual, or in a witness sense, one who bears witness on behalf of an individual. In either case, Christians can have hope when they do sin because of the advocacy of Jesus Christ on their behalf. For Jesus to be the righteous reminds us that the end result of a Christian is to be cleansed of unrighteousness. This is done through Christ. Because we are cleansed of unrighteousness, it means that we can attain righteousness through Jesus. We then come to verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This verse is one of the most significant verses in the book of 1 John. And because of that, it is surrounded by debate. So let's spend some time looking at these verses and um, seeing, understanding it in light of 1 John and what he's trying to say here. The first part of the debate stems from the first half of the verse. What does he mean when he says, He is the propitiation for our sins? The term translated as propitiation in the Greek is halasmos um, and has two specific nuances to it. It can either mean as the ESV translated as propitiation or it can mean expiation. The propitiation-expiation debate has raged for quite some time and I'm not sure if anyone here is familiar with it at all. Mike, you might be. No, all righty. Well, we're going to talk about it. <laughs> we'll start with expiation. The term expiation focuses on the cleansing of sin. In this sense, John would be speaking of taking away the unrighteousness, which was described in verses 6 through 10. And so that's what expiation means. It means to expiate, to take away sin. Propitiation is similar, but instead it focuses on turning away wrath. Um, in this sense, John is making it clear that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross turns away the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin. And so you see the two different understandings. One is focused on wrath. The other one is focused on making cleansing. So the question we want to ask is, which is in view? Does it mean the cleansing of sin or does it mean the wrath of God being averted through the sacrifice of Christ? Well, the answer is both. <laughs> the term halasmos has both understandings in the New Testament. That, that, well, the LXX, that is the Septuagint, the Old Testament translation into Greek, and in the New Testament as well. By cleansing our sins, God's wrath is averted. Some will wonder why not just use the word atonement then instead of propitiation or expiation. The answer is that while atonement does fit, it doesn't quite grasp 
the set, full sense of what Christ does, let's say, as a propitiation for our sin and averting the wrath of God. While expi- expiation, well, expiation essentially leads exactly to that same thing. Now, that's that debate. In the end, I think that they did a good job saying propitiation here. I think that's what's in view. Um, but if you want to go with expiation, I'm not going to hate you for it. The second debate concerns the second half of the verse. What does it mean when John says, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world? Um, and this, if you, can, if you read that, you can kind of see where the debate is going to be heading. Um, and it has inter- interesting repercussions, how you view this, for understanding end times eschatological theology. So, there's two views. Some hold a universalist understanding for this. That is, those who hold a universalism belief is that all people will be redeemed by Christ. Regardless if one was a Christian or not in this life. Regardless of how they lived. Universalists hold that this verse implies it since it states the sins of the whole world. Unfortunately, such an understanding goes against what John has already said. If this were true, then the previous verses about being in the life and the truth, as contrasted with being in darkness and lies, it would be irrelevant to even say that. As it would be irrelevant for John to care about his spiritual children, um, whether or not they're living in sin. Because if in the end, Christ atones for all sins regardless of if you even follow him or not, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to believe in him. Um, and obviously... It does, according to 1 John. So what is another interpretation? It likely means not that Christ's sacrifice is meant for all people everywhere. Instead, it is to be understood that his sacrifice is sufficient for all those who belong to him in all time and all places. No matter when or where one comes to Christ in this world, the expiatory propitiation of the cross is sufficient for salvation. One of the commentators I read, Yarbrough, also recognizes that the cross allows for forbearance concerning judgment. Why is it that God does not simply judge the world right now after one sin? Why doesn't he do that? Um, Why the delay? It is argued that through the sacrifice of Christ, there is divine forbearance concerning the judgment of God. Now, as a side note, this does not mean that Christ's sacrifice is insufficient in some way. It does not mean that it could not fulfill the expiatory propitiation for, this, for the whole world if the whole world turned toward him. If the whole world did turn toward Christ, then Christ is sufficient even for the whole world. Instead, it recognizes that it is limited to those who live in repentance, faith, and love in Christ. So that's that. Let's go ahead to verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. At this point, John turns toward an important feature. The question we want to ask is, how are we to know if we are in Christ? How do we know if we are in the light? Can we have any assurance to our salvation? Do we always have to be wondering about it? Can we know if we have come to know him? John's answer is yes. How do we know? 
if we keep his commandments. We notice that commandments here is plural, indicating more than one. Likewise, it is not simply a command, but a commandment, which recognizes that it is meant for not just a particular group of people, or time, or space, or place, but for all who come to Christ regardless of when or where. So what are the commandments? It comes down to three. The first is living a repentant lifestyle, living a life according to the law as interpreted by Christ. The second is faith in Christ, recognizing our dependence upon Christ for our salvation. And finally, the necessity of love, first for God and for others. If we are living a lifestyle which includes these things, all of them combined, then we can find biblical assurance. Verse 4, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. This verse is a reiteration of chapter 1, where we find one who lives in darkness rather than the light. If we live in a way of darkness rather than a way of light, that is, if we live in sin rather than living according to the commandments of Christ and repentance, faith, and love, then we are not in the light and we have no reason for assurance. To claim to know Christ, but to not live as he instructed, is to not know him. Ultimately, such an individual is a liar, as we have seen previously, and because of this, they cannot be in the truth. Verse 5, But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we can know we are in him. And it has a colon there, but we'll continue. Um, This verse further adds to the assurance we can find in verse 3. Now the focus is on the word which correlates to two things. The first is the commandments found in verse 3, and the second is with what follows, which is love. It is in those who keep the word of God, the word that the love of God is being perfected in that individual. This is further evidence that we are in him. Now we come to verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This verse now concludes the remarks concerning our assurance. If one is going to claim to abide in Christ, then one must walk in the same way he walked. Um, For those who are going to claim to know the light, to know Christ, to be a Christian, then they are to be ones who live as Christ lived. Now the question is, what does it mean to walk as he walked? Does it mean asking ourselves, What would Jesus do? Does it mean to imitate Christ in this life? In some ways it does, but they tend to fall short. Most of these, most of the ways these are interpreted represent a moralistic behavior at best, or at worst, literally mimicking what Jesus did. One can think of the man who walks across the country with a cross on his shoulder, for example. Is this the kind of imitation that John has in mind? I would argue no. Instead, to imitate Christ is to be his disciple. To follow him in a way which is complete and total dedication. It is not merely mimicking him, but becoming like him in his life. It is not just morals. It is having relationship with the Father as Christ had with the Father. It is to live according to the Father's will for the glory of the Father in repentance, faith, and love. The main point of these verses is to bring us a state 
of assurance. It is possible to know, is it possible to know that if we are in the darkness or the light? The answer is yes. We can know we are in the light rather than the darkness if we live in repentance, live faithfully in Christ, and live in the love of God, which is being perfected in us in these ways. This is how we can be sure if we are in the faith. You can be biblically assured by the lifestyle you live according to the word of God. Now this leads us to our applications. The first concerns sin. One of the main reasons for writing the letter is so that those whom the letter is written to will not sin. The question we want to know is, what is in view when John says this? Does he mean a specific commandment which um, he does not want them to fall out of? Does it mean a series of sins? Does it mean not following the law? What is in mind that would cause him to write this letter? That is what we want to consider. So what is sin? We know that sin is missing the mark. In particular, missing the mark of righteousness. Generally, the scriptures speak of sin as missing the mark concerning the law, or missing the mark concerning any commandment of God. When we fail to uphold any commandment of God, we fall into sin. This is the first sense in which sin is being understood here in John. It is to not fulfill the law of God, to not fulfill his commandments. We could leave it at that. However, John is also more specific. As we have seen in today's text, John also understands the necessity of two important Christian truths, and that is faith and love. John focuses on missing the mark by not placing our faith in Christ, and when we do not live in love being perfected in us. It is these two commandments which John focuses on in these few verses. As a side note, John does not neglect a repentant lifestyle in general. In other words, in the previous verses in chapter 1, John focuses heavily on a repentant lifestyle in an overarching way. All of our life should be repentant, turning away from our sin and turning toward God. It doesn't matter what that sin is. When we seek to live in repentance, we seek to separate ourselves from any sin. In this particular section, however, the focus is on specific commandments of faith and love. Concerning faith in Christ, it is possible for us to miss the mark by not placing our faith in Christ in in a certain capacity. We may be very moral individuals. We may live our lives and look around us and think, well, I'm doing better or I'm doing all right compared to this person or that person. So it could cause us to rely less on Christ and more on our own abilities when it comes to being made right with God. We can try to justify ourselves based upon the people around us in ourselves and not finding our justification in Christ. Yet John has consistently shown us the necessity of being in Christ. It is not only a matter of knowing Christ, but knowing Christ correctly. He is not only a good teacher to be followed, nor is he only a righteous man who lived at one point in Judea. He is these things and more. He is our propitiation. His sacrifice expiates our sins. He is our advocate before the Father. This is what John has in mind when Christ is brought into the picture earlier in the text, and what it means in the previous chapter to be in the light and the life. 
So to have the right Christology, that is the study of Christ, is an important issue for John. It is not enough for Christ to be only a part of who he is as represented in the scriptures. He must be all of himself. He must be all of himself to us. And we must place our faith in all of who he is. Love is another important point for John. When we take our life into account, is the love of God being perfected in us? John immediately shows us what this means by reflecting on walking as Jesus walked. Jesus walked in love for his brothers and sisters, but most importantly, he walked in his love for his Father in heaven. In Gethsemane, we see this clearly. If it is the will of the Father, he would go to the cross. Why? Because he loved his Father. So too we are to love our brothers and sisters and our Father in heaven. So the application for us is to search ourselves. Are we living lives of repentance? Are we living lives of faith, complete faith in Christ? Are we living lives of love for the Father, of the Father, love for each other? This is what we need to ask ourselves. This is where we need to look at ourselves and look to the scriptures and see if there are any discrepancies. And if there is, we need to seek God to take away these things in our lives and give us stronger commitments to his will, which is that we live this lifestyle of repentance in faith and in love. Now, all that said, and this is the second point. Even though John understands the Christian life and the assurance in this way of a lifestyle of repentance in faith and love, we can be sure that he also recognizes the reality that we still fall into sin. There are moments when we definitely fail. We do not always remain completely faithful to God. I know that's surprising to at least one person here. Probably not. We do not always love God as he deserves to be loved. We don't always love our neighbors as ourselves. We do not always repent fully of our sins the way that we should. For those who understand all of these things, there is hope. There are many individuals who have failed, and because of their failing, they live in this state of dread and unescapable sorrow. They wonder if God really loves them at all, if they are really in Christ. These individuals are those who recognize their desperate need for salvation through Christ and live the lifestyles of repentance, faith, and love. Yet because of their sensitivity to sin, they allow themselves to get caught in the trap of the devil who points his finger and declares them to be completely unworthy and outside of salvation. I am unsure if this is you. I know that it's been me at times. The feeling of, how did I mess up so much? It may even be something that you have struggled with for a while, and despite the progress made, as soon as you stumble, you think, can I have any hope of salvation? Instead of seeing how far we've progressed, we allow allow ourselves to look at the work of God in our lives as small things. To such a thing... We must admit something. If the devil does come and accuse us, we must admit to some extent that the devil is right in his accusations. I know what you're thinking. Give me, a, give me a minute. We are unworthy. We have sinned. It is true. All of these things are true. But do you know what else is true? 
If we are in Christ, we have been bought with a price, and that price is the blood of Jesus Christ. Do not let the devil steal your joy because you stumble. Instead, cling to Jesus more and find more joy in his sacrifice. The reality is, we are all going to stumble. We are all going to struggle against sin from the moment of conversion until the last breath we breathe. This is our reality. It is the reality at war with sin. However, this does not mean we will not have victory. We do have victory because Christ had victory. We can defeat sin because Christ defeated sin and his victory we find our own. We are never going to say sin is good. We are never going to look at sin and think, ah, that's very righteous. No, sin is sin. Whether we acknowledge it as sin or if we fail to acknowledge it, sin is sin for those who are in Christ and for those who are outside of Christ. The difference is we have an advocate in Christ, whereas those who are not being perfected do not have an advocate. So for those of you who are like me, don't let yourself and don't let the devil take away the joy found in Christ. Don't let yourself be led into a lie because of a sin. As a Christian, in the struggle against sin, there will be times when we fail, and we have remorse for these times, knowing that our God deserves all of us, better from us, but we also have hope and joy because we have faith in Christ, that his blood cleanses us, and that he advocates for us. Be at peace, despite the assumption of sin. Be at peace knowing Christ has come. Though we should fall and stumble, Christ is strong enough to carry the load of our sorrows and our sins, and he will if we are in him. Do not expect perfection in this life with the exception of this. In Christ, our redemption is perfected because it rests fully on him. Until that time, when we reach the glorious gates, the love of God will be continuing to be perfected in us. It's a lifelong process, and we may not fully be made perfect now in this life, but we are being led by God in this life toward that perfection. Now this leads us to our third point. When John comes to the conclusion of these verses in verse 6, he says that one who claims to be in Christ must walk as Christ walked. Now we already looked at this in some capacity, but it seems wise for us to understand the necessary application. Um, We don't want to just think about it. We want to also apply it. And the application to you and to me is to do it. To live as Christ lived. Not in the sense of going to Judea and preaching against Pharisees and Sadducees and others who would rather place us under a yoke. Don't, don't go there and do that. Well, unless God calls you to, then you can go. Instead, it means that we are to live as Christ lived in love and communion with the Father and his brothers and sisters of the faith. It means everything we discuss concerning what sin looks like and then reversing it. Christ walked in the law. When he spoke on the Sermon of the Mount, it was not only teachings. It was a revelation concerning who Christ is, how he lived, and how if we are in Christ, we should live according to his teaching. Christ lived that way. We should as well. We live that way when we walk in repentance, which is turning away from sin and turning toward God and his righteousness. It is as Christ walked 
in the law, fulfilling the commandments of God, so we should walk that way as well. Christ walked in faith. That may seem an interesting statement, but consider a few things. First, the temptation in the desert. Christ could have done all that the devil tempted him to do. Could have. It was completely possible for Christ to jump and not be hurt. He could have. He could turn stones into bread. He could even technically bow down and take that kingdom for himself in that moment. Yet it was his faith in his Father's will which enables him to stand against the great temptation. The same could be said of the time he fed 5,000 people. Or, we don't know how many it was, but it was 5,000. We know that number. After he did this, the people wanted him to become king in John. It's one thing when the devil is tempting you out in the wilderness. It can be just as strong a temptation to forego the cross and take the crown when thousands are desiring that you do it. Christ is able to stand against the great temptation because of his faith in his Father. Finally, when it came to Gethsemane, we see it again in this place of dread. The great temptation to run, to forego the cross. It was of such a burden that Christ would even be willing that if there were any other way than to drink this cup of wrath, he'd do it. Yet, he stands in the garden. And when he stands, the battle is over. Because he has already committed himself fully to the will of his Father in faith that it was the only way that he must drink the cup. Christ, he walked in love. Has there ever been any other life which expressed a more fervent love than Christ for his Father and for his brothers and sisters of the faith. No greater love is there than this, that one lays down his life for his friends. Christ laid down his life to bring redemption to us, his friends. He did it because it was the way in which his Father would receive the most glory for this redemption. He did it in faith to his Father and love for his Father's will. So how do you walk as Christ walked? You walk in repentance against sin as Christ walked against sin. The difference, of course, being that Christ did not need repentance, did he? But instead, he shows us the fruit of repentance, which is righteousness. Likewise, you walk in faithfulness to God and his redemption through his Son, Jesus Christ. Faith in the God of mercy and love who brings love for God, who brings this righteousness for all time. You walk as Christ walked when you walk in love for the Father and love for each other. This life is too short for us to be living in whatever way the wind would carry. This life is a treasure. Don't waste it on a lifestyle which is different than the lifestyle of Jesus Christ. Follow him in his life to bring glory to God Almighty. Be filled with the glory of God through a life lived in the light. Give yourself to the life, the eternal life, to Christ, and know the full joy of God through his Son. Naturally, this causes us to reflect on the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. In today's text, we receive what is often called the crux of the gospel, which is Christ as our expiation and propitiation. Apart from this, if there were no crux of the gospel, 
then the Christian gospel would be dark without any hope. But as it is, it is filled with a great light, as expressed by John today. The gospel begins with our origins. God created all the cosmos by the power of his word. Last of all, he created humanity to bear his image. It is because God is a God of love, reason, he can know, can be known, has personhood, um, has morality, shows hesed, we can as well. And it's here that we find the sanctity, the dignity, and the worth to all human life. Yet, like God, we are also able to choose. We could either follow God in obedience in life or follow sin in disobedience and death. We chose the latter, and we have continued to make that choice ever since. Because of this, our relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world are broken. And it's because of this, it's in our sin, we find our guilt before God. Not a feeling of guilt, but of true guilt before a righteous judge. God could have left us in this state. He he could have not have built an ark. Um, But instead... He did, and he sent the crux of the gospel overall. He sent his light and his word into the darkness, and that was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, lived, died, and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. By his blood we are cleansed for our sin. By his sacrifice we have propitiation, so we are no longer under the wrath of God. And by him we are made righteous before our God. Our relationships are being restored with each other, with ourselves and with God. And through his victory in life over death, we can have victory in life and over death. All that is required of us is two things. The first is repentance. We are to turn away from our sin and turn toward God. We are to live a lifestyle of bearing good fruit according to the word of God. We are to walk in step with the Spirit, walking as Jesus walked in love. We are to turn our love from our sins toward God and toward each other. Likewise, we are to have faith in Christ. We must recognize our complete and total dependence upon the Son of God for our salvation. We must recognize our inability to attain the glory of God by our deeds, and that it is not what we do, but what Christ has done. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, In Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. If we remain in disobedience in these things, we will only experience condemnation. None can stand before God with only their own deeds in hand. For only Christ is completely righteous, while even our greatest deeds are as filthy rags. None can stand before God apart from the advocacy of Jesus Christ the righteous. Because of this, any who go before God apart from Christ go to judgment. Yet if we are obedient to God in these things, we will find no condemnation. Instead, we find the love of God reserved only for his son, Jesus Christ. We find victory over sin in this life. We become co-heirs of an eternal kingdom where we will experience the peace of God forevermore. My encouragement to you is to walk as Christ walked, to cling to the propitiation, the expiation found in Christ, to know that if you are in Christ, you are cleansed of all sin, to stand firm against the darkness and to find peace and joy knowing Christ, walking in repentance, faith, and love for the glory of God. Find assurance in the scriptures and be assured in the great God 
of salvation. Amen. Let us go to Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you because you enable us to live a way which is completely contrary to how we once lived. Where once we lived in darkness, you have shown us a great light, and now we too can walk in that light. And Lord, if we should stumble, if we should fall down, we know that Christ is strong enough to lift us back up, to dust us off, and to help us along the road. And we know that for those who are in Christ, that is exactly what you do. You lift us up, you brush us off, keep us going on the journey. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. And we ask that you would be glorified through our lives as we walk as your Son walked. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.